Hello and welcome to Screen Queens, the podcast that dazzles you with a deep discussion of drag in cinema. We are your dynamic duo of myself, Rue Jazzle, and CJ Bangs. Now, from the perspective of two fabulous drag artists and our very special guests each week, we're taking a strut down Hollywood's history of drag portrayal to see what they got right, what they got wrong, and all the glitter in between. Yes, yes, yes. Indeed, we are two queens on a mission to watch and dissect every single movie that contains drag or just generic queer and fabulous elements. And in this episode, we are diving into the world of the club kids with the camp classic Party Monster with our extra special guest. It is Lucy. She is the artist behind the character of Havana Meltdown. She's a club legend and just a general icon. So please welcome Lucy. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for by joining here. us. I mean, in my um, bedroom on the phone, but still, I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> That's what being somewhere is these days. Um, <laughs> yes. Now, am I correct in thinking that you request? did this film specifically this was not us being like do you want to do this you were like i need to do this film do you have a connection to the film oh see i joke because i'm not a big um i'm, I'm not a big film person i was Same. too invested in vine anything over 15 seconds my brain just switches <laughs> off and i always joke that i've only seen eight films and three of them are party monster um so <laughs> I, I, party monster had like such a huge impact on my life and it's really weird watching it now with like an analytical eye because i can see key moments and stuff and I'm like oh that's where that aspect of my personality comes from because I watched it when I was 17 and that basically started my queer life so that's why I've been so excited about doing this. (laughs) We see it definitely when we watch films that we've either seen before or you've only seen it once or twice and to watch it with the idea of like how much can I critique this? It does really take a lot of the fun out of these films, (laughs) but that's our job. I think because of the film, a lot of the fun aspects of it kind of do get ruined because this is a true story. Um, So as much as you can be like, fun, fun, glitter, party, it's like grisly murder, but I'm sure we'll get into all that. Well, yeah, I think that like a lot of queer folk have a movie that is quite important for them in like their development and their, their cracking of their queer egg in a way. And I think for like a lot of people, it is like something like Rocky Horror Picture Show. But yeah, I think this definitely makes sense for like this film to be very important to you as a club legend yourself. And yeah, like I think it's it's an interesting one. I'd not seen it before the entire way through. I'd seen bits of it. And it's quite fun watching it because you can like make so many connections to other kind of queer media through this film. Because obviously it's produced by World of Wonder, who of course made RuPaul's Drag Race. It's directed by um, Randy and Fenton, who are big parts of um, a lot of shows that we ingest as um, folk these days through like the Drag Race Monster. And it contains like so many cameos from like familiar faces. So it's definitely an interesting one to talk about. I'm guessing you hadn't watched before CJ. Actually, this is one of the few films that when I became a drag queen, I was like, I think this is kind of mandatory viewing. It was one of the few that I was like, this is on the list of I can't show up to a club and someone quotes a line from Party Monster and I'm like, what's that? And I knew I kind of needed to know it. Um, I will say I think it took me about three tries to get all the way through because of the acting, but we'll get to that. (laughs) We will get to that. Um, 
Yes, before we dive into more about this film, I'll quickly just give you guys the kind of the, the, the simple synopsis here. It's, as Lucy said, this film is, is based on a true story. It's about the club kids in New York, specifically the friendship of Michael Alec and James St. James, and the, the true story of the murder and all of the shenanigans around that. Do you have any like fun little tidbits before we start, CJ, about the film? Well, we'll talk about the the layers of filmmaking that went into this because obviously it's based on a documentary which was based on a book. So this is like the third iteration of this story being told in media. Um, and I think this is obviously the most sensationalised version of it because this is a, a film which has artistic liberties. The documentary's more on just like telling the facts as they are. And, you know, James's book will probably have had little liabilities here and there, but was recounting his own experiences. So like, it's interesting to see that this film is kind of like the monster that becomes a story that's told two, three, four times. Um, the other things, whenever I'm doing this synopsis thing, I like to see like, was casting ever going to be someone else? It doesn't say so. So I think these two were the ones that always were going to play these two. There's just some little fun tidbits from IMDb that I love to throw in there. Um, IMDb says that at 25, you're considered too old to be a club kid. Don't know what the source says. Don't know what the reference says. Apparently, twenty-five-year-olds are too old to be club kids. I believe that's a direct fact. quote from Chanel O'Connor. Um, yes, Chanel. <laughs> <laughs> As a twenty-nine-year-old, I can experience that. Yes, <laughs> I was going to say that means that of the three of us, I'm the only one uh, able to still be wow. a club kid. Yes, uh, although they did lie about their age an awful lot because I mean we've all seen James St James now. I mean that was only twenty years ago, <laughs> thirty years ago. Oh wow, time moves fast. <laughs> time moves very fast. Um, I also love one of the tidbits that World of Wonder said is they had to tone down the level of drug taking so that people would believe it. It was <laughs> unbelievable the amount of they were like, here's real life, here's what people will believe, which is wild to think about True. um what else so both main actors um i think seth green is that his name mm -hmm. yes both seth and macaulay culkin met the people that they were going to be portraying macaulay culkin went to prison to meet michael alec before it filmed um there's no real details on what they talked about or how much depth was gone into for character arcs or whatever but um it's I always appreciate when you can tell an actor's like, okay, I'm going to be portraying a real person who is still alive. We'll probably see this. How true to life can I be? It's a shame that they both were absolutely nothing like the person they were portraying. But I appreciate the effort. I actually disagree. I mean, I, I don't know how Michael Alec acts, but I actually think that Seth Green kind of did sound and act like James St. James. The acting Mama, is bad, is but much. I think that the impersonation is kind of there. I think even the voice, like he has that kind of nasally voice. I, I think it, it worked for me, I think. I think the acting is sort of bad because, I mean, yes, Michael Alec and James St. James, <laughs> Michael Alec and James St. James in real life are playing caricatures of themselves. So you've then yeah. got to be an actor playing a real person playing a caricature of themselves because like I mean fundamentally that's what we do as queer people in nightlife and drag queens where we are people playing characters so imagine someone trying to play your life like it, it, it would you know not quite be like Shakespearean you know what I mean <laughs> it's it, I think you're totally right Lucy like 
I was kind of when I was watching it, I was thinking is the acting bad is the script bad but I'm kind of like actually no I think this is how these people did perform and act that's what they were like they were very like over the top and very like artificial and fake so I think it actually was quite true to life but it, I think it still has that very much camp edge as well which it can be very hit or miss in cinema so yeah we shall see my, my thing is that you're like oh he got down James Jim's voice because he's nasally there's a difference in being nasal and talking like you're in a play, like you've got the cold, where all of the sounds <laughs> comes out of your mouth and nothing comes out your nose. That's, That's all actually I very accurate. That was a very accurate totally. portrayal. Have I mean, you considered doing the sequel to Party Monster? <laughs> what I will say is, it's understandable because none of these people had a functioning nostril at any point in this film. Oh, if not a talking, single piece of cartilage between them. No, like <laughs> the full uh, Tarapama Tompkinson for every Just single Just vibes, person. no septums. <laughs> but um, yes, the only other things that I have written down, um, there was around a thousand costumes used in the entire thing. And it set precedent because it was a really low budget film, but they got a lot of the costumes from the original Club Kids. Um, and I didn't look at any of the costumes and go, oh, that rings a bell, except for the talk show. See, when they're on the talk show, mm -hmm. I looked at some of those costumes and I was like, those are probably from James St. James's costume cupboard and they're like original pieces. Um, I don't think it was so much James St. James and stuff because like obviously his um, stuff was like designer stuff and it was also so long ago and I don't mean to be mean to James St. James or body shape in any, in any way, shape or form, but I don't think he's brought them out anytime recently. Um, but some of the sort of lesser known club kids would have still had the costumes and I don't know if the Clara the Chicken and Ice of the Bear ones were the same, um, but we'll talk about them later because they were truly iconic. Um, I think they were the same because if you watch the Shockumentary, which was the documentary, it's pretty accurate. Like they're very, very accurate. Exactly. I think it'd be difficult to recreate now. Um, although they must smell horrible after 30 years. Um, do you know one of the most interesting places that I used to get so much information about this film? Perez Hilton, remember the gossip columnist oh, from like God. the the 2000s? So I remember distinctly because I was a big Perez Hilton reader. And um, yeah, they used to have like loads of like information about that film because I, I went to high school in 2003, which was the first year I started high school. And it was also the year it came out. So I was very much like reading Perez Hilton and stuff like that and doing all that. And I just remember the distinct memory of stills from the movie with the Perez Hilton like spunk line coming out the mouth which was always like a standard thing for every picture right. poison person poison person but yeah no there used to be loads of production information on there but that's now lost to the sands of internet time i think <laughs> and lost to the empire of Perez hilton which we shall burn so definitely <laughs> yes absolutely only other tidbit from production is that obviously as we've said world of wonder produces RuPaul's drag race and the lady herself miss ripple was originally scheduled to be in the movie but had to go and record uh, Red Hot, the album, and was not therefore able due to scheduling conflicts. So I wonder hmm. what role she would have played. Probably I just think one it would have been herself in the talk show bit, because um, if yeah. you watch the original, it's the Geraldo talk show. If you yeah. watch the original Geraldo talk show from 1999, she's in that, and she's talking, and she's doing, and she's got like the full ramen wig on, and she's like, everybody say love, doing all that kind of early RuPaul stuff. And um, it's really interesting because Geraldo just doesn't understand the name RuPaul, so keeps calling her RuBall. <laughs> Not RuBall. <laughs> wow. RuBall. Yes. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's early 90s homophobia for you kids. <laughs> early 90s homophobia. 
um, it's not a tip that they've written down, but like because you brought it up, they filmed that whole talk show bit on the set of the Montel Williams show, and they filmed yeah. it for free. They didn't charge them anything. Yeah. That's how they were able to afford that. <laughs> but I, I mean, we'll, we'll chat more about it later. But that talk show scene, I thought that was archive footage because it looked so like authentic. It even I think the camera quality even changed. Like it looked like it was from a nineties talk show. I think the cast itself is quite legendary, and it has so many people that even to this day that we kind of stand, like people like Natasha Leone. Um, yes. Iconic. Who, like, a small role. And then there's Damien from Mean Girls, Daniel Franzese is in it. As yeah. He is like the chicken and the rat. And he's the guy. The stagehand when Natasha Leone um, and um, Chloe, Chloe Sevigny. Yeah. yeah, I was like, I'm going to ruin that name. Thank you so much. Um, they, when they first get introduced, he's the stagehand yeah. at that point. So it's, it's interesting. H- have a look at the IMDb page, even if you're not going to watch the movie, because there's lots of very interesting people that pop up on there. And like Marilyn Manson in drag as, what was it, Christina, Christina. Superstar? Christina Superstar, who yeah. actually showed up on, here's another tip, but who showed up on set with his own wigs, boob, and I think bum. <laughs> like he just had his own like um, breastplate. And I don't know if that is the wig he bought because I know Manson makes good money and that was not a good money wig, even <laughs> for the time. <laughs> John Stamos is the talk show host. Exactly. Right. Like, <laughs> incredible. And also playing the character of Peter, there is Dylan McDermott, who's known like nowadays for like American Horror Story. Um, yes. Also playing yeah. Michael Alex's mum is an actress, I can't remember her name, but she plays Christina in Mummy Dearest, another kind of camp classic. And there's also, of course, cameos from Amanda Lepore and Richie Rich and a few other club kids. So the cast, oh, I think, Rich is... pops up so much in everything. Yeah. Richie Rich goes to the opening of an envelope. Um, and for anyone <laughs> who doesn't know who Richie Rich is, Richie Rich um, was a club kid back in the day, um, but also created a fashion house called Heatherette. Now, mid-noughties fashion has become very popular at the time. So th- things that Paris Hilton used to wear is very popular. Richie Rich was actually the person who dressed her most of the time. Um, so there's another Did little bit Oh, I am like an encyclopedia of like club kid knowledge. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I've just seen that um, the guy playing Kiyoki was as Wilmer Valderrama. Yeah. Who I did. I only know from Drag Race, but yeah, yeah. Big, like, <laughs> that's a TV show. Star. He also um, dated a lot of um, sort of pop queens who were very much underage at the time. I think Demi Lovato started going out with about 16. Uh, Mandy Moore was another one that was about 16. Mm. Lindsay Lohan, of course. Ashley Simpson. Yeah, I think someone else from that 70s show has just been um, sort of done for sort of sexual misconduct as well. So that must have been a very interesting set to be on. So well done, Mila Kunis, for getting out of that. One thing I was going to add is that when I was, you're going to hate me here, CJ, when I was in New York in 2015, This is what I'm here for. That was the year after Michael Alec got out of prison. And I remember, so I was out and about at like club kid parties and still go ahead, like Suzanne Barsh is still kicking about producing events. And there was always like whispers in the club of like, oh, Michael was here last week. And I think he was definitely breaking his um, parole because I think he wasn't allowed out past 8 p.m. after he got out of prison, but he was definitely going to like events and stuff. And I think he's now being charged again for drugs. So it's a shame that he's not kind of like dealt with his problems and whatever. I guess drugs are quite a difficult issue to overcome. I just find it wild that he's out of prison and he killed someone 
like recently like it's it just kind of like within my lifetime it's pretty crazy definitely i've watched interviews with him and like he is literally just i read an interview with him today and it was from it was from 2015 so it's not like recent recent but he was like oh yeah you know i was just in the east village the other day and i was getting chased by tmz and i was chatting to some girls on like the train the other day and they were asking me about the club scene and stuff and i'm like did you kill someone you didn't just kill them you killed them horrifically and cut them off like well, so, it's like we were watching complete segue and side chat. Like we were watching murder case the other day, and like someone was like, "Oh yeah, I killed this guy. I didn't mean to kill him. I just meant to beat him up really badly, and he got nine years in jail for see, killing someone." This is the American judicial system where this you was know, in the UK. This oh really? The UK. This wow. was like, and this was in uh, Renfrew. Oh wow wild people are not getting the amount of time they deserve for killing another human being we'll yeah. get to <laughs> yeah we'll get to that we will. this is now a true crime podcast welcome <laughs> so last thing before we dive into the plot i wrote in a couple of themes maybe you guys can uh, like agree with me or add some more um i have three and the themes i have for this film are friendship as a theme drugs obviously because there is so much drug taking in this film i think there's more drug taking in this film than like train spotting it is ridiculous Um, there's more drug taking than acting in this film yeah yeah and the last one was excess slash fame because they're kind of linked it's the whole kind of like the andy warhol thing of like wanting to be a superstar by any means possible those might those money success fame glamour you know pretty much yeah exactly so let's dive in. The film begins with James St. James, played by Seth Green, who is narrating the story at this point. And we flash back to a party um, and we meet Michael Alec, played by Macaulay Culkin, who is at this point the king of the club kids and also a drug addled mess. We're kind of cutting to the end of the story at the start of the film and we kind of cut backwards and it all makes sense. Michael is the king of the club kids and James St. James, who's his kind of sidekick and also working on the next great American novel. So James goes to meet Michael for tea, AKA a massive plate of drugs. And Michael says someone is missing and it is their drug dealer, Angel. And at first James thinks he's joking, but then he sees the blood on Michael's shoes. James then passes out and the narrative switches to Michael who explains that he's, it's the kind of classic story of like a young queer kid from a small town who's an outcast, but intelligent. He's a survivor of abuse and he moves to New York, um, not to be a normal person, but to kind of create this free world of endless parties. It's interesting because it's that whole, um, it is the classic queer storyline, like I'm a bit different, I want more out of life, I know I'm, I'm worth more than this silly little town. I mean, literally all of us have moved to a city at some point because we're like, we're too interesting and queer for where we are. I mean, I don't know if I could manage all the way to 29 in Falkirk personally, and I think you are probably the same. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it taps into that like classic, like queer storyline of like, you know, I'm going to move to the city and live the big life. And I think most queer people can identify with that like straight off the bat. I think it's worth pointing out as well, like at the start, before we really get into it, that all the main characters are straight. Um, like not not the main characters, all the main actors in yeah. the main roles are all straight people, um, as far as I'm aware. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not, I, I don't know if any of them are in a closet because they're all from that, you know, good old time period of when people didn't come out. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's really interesting to see queerness played by straight people 
Um, and I think it's played quite well because that is like the archetypal queer story. I agree with you, Lucy. Like, I mean, as much as there is an issue with Hollywood with always, with well, an issue with them never casting queer actors for queer roles, I actually think they play them quite well and they are quite believable. One thing we didn't mention earlier is that this was Macaulay's first one in a long time and it kind of, it is that classic thing where a child actor has a big break and then comes back and does something quite controversial almost. Yeah, this was the twerking moment, yeah. Exactly. Macaulay's like hanging a lot lot of boxes here, like he's doing drugs, he's gay, he's like overdosing, like, yeah, it's a lot of things at once. From what I've seen in like, photos and you know whatever survives from the club kids period the looks that we get right at the start with the halloween stuff i'm like this is pretty tame and not that club kiddie do you know what i mean i i don't know if a part of me was like oh maybe i'm just like holding up to today's like drag and club kids standards but like no james said james and that back in the day were pulling like crazy crazy looks and i was like the first scene where we meet Michael and he's got like a scar in his eyebrow and white face makeup. I was like, is this it? Is this, well, is this the looks? I can tell you why that is. So it was referencing the blood feast party, which was like very heavily emphasized in the showcumentary. So I think that was them sort of referencing that. And obviously you see it later in the film as well. Um, and it was the classic James St. James in a cage, do not feed the drug child. And he would just sit in a cage and be like, give me a bump. Can please someone give me a bump? And people would just like lean in with a key and just like hand it to him. Um, so I think they did want to just directly reference that party because I think it was their biggest, most successful one. I mean, when we used to do Club Nights way, way, way back in 2019, we actually used old um, the old promotional material. Um, no, you saying way, 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 way back in 2019. Oh, no, no, 2009. 2009. That's how it's way, way, way back. Uh, yeah, I thought you were being serious. Child. Let's see. We were allowed to leave the house in 2019. 2020 has exploded my brain when it comes to the passage of time. Um, so way back in 2009, we like the um, posters would all have like the um, Blood Feast like promo material that they used and stuff on them. Wow. Um, yeah. So that's that's what that's referencing directly. That's why you don't get like look right from the start. And also, I think it's to give Michael that arc humanness. Yeah, and it also gives him that arc where it kind of ramps up because for that first part, he's like you know he's his classic Midwestern boy look, and then he's starting to get a little bit more adventurous. If you if you jump right in there with like here's Michael in a thong made of like PPE at this like medical themed party. Um, which was very on trend for this year, I have to say. Yeah. Um, then, yeah, I'm sure there's many OnlyFans dedicated to just those looks right now. Um, then, yeah, you get you get to have that sort of arc rather than it being like, here's Michael covered in googly eyes. Like, mm. I wanted googly eyes. I was hungry for googly eyes, but I knew we would yeah. get there. I think, yeah, I think also we have crazy unrealistic standards of looks for drag artists or club kids these days because of like shows like Drag Race that set these crazy standards and I think especially for like kids in New York in the 80s and 90s they maybe like didn't have much money because they were spending all on drugs they literally would just make a look with what they had and okay some weeks they would maybe have some crazy like high fashion outfit and other weeks they would have like just some trash they would just throw on so I think it is I think it is quite realistic in that sense and I mean, obviously, this is based on a work by James St. James. I do trust him, even though he was fucked up on drugs. I do trust his his memories and of of, of that of that 
situation. So yeah, James is passed out and then he wakes up and he demands the narrative switched back to him and that he actually moved to New York first before Michael and that he was the original club kid. And there's a lot of these kind of moments in the film of the narrative switching between James and Michael. It's kind of about both of them, not just one. And there's lots of kind of breaking of the fourth wall and the characters kind of acknowledging that it's a film in itself. So it's quite, it's quite a strange film where it's, it's almost like a documentary, but it's within a film. It's very, it's very unusual. I don't know many films like this, to be honest. A self-aware biopic. Um, yeah, uh, I quite like that. I, I like the start bit, how it switches between James and Michael, because it does set up that sort of rivalry friendship that they have. Um, because it, like, it, is, it is the case that they're still friends to this day like Michael can literally kill someone and James will be like oh you because he's charming and they, <laughs> they, they see a lot of similarities in each other even though they do differ quite a lot um, I hope they differ quite a lot I don't know what closet, uh, what skeletons James St. James has in his closet but <laughs> probably not the same as Michael <laughs> hopefully not <laughs> no totally like if you're saying one of the themes is friendship this from the outset says they are rival they are like they, they, they hate each other but that's why they love each other and that's that signifies the rest of the film I also love this type of film where it's like it, it's, it kind of feels like a, an episode of um, it's it, I can't think of the sitcom but where Breaking the Fourth Wall is my favourite thing where it feels more like it's, it feels like the old Spice advert where he's like now I'm walking over here now I'm on a horse now I've got this old Spice <laughs> in my hand you know that advert it's very yeah. that and I love it <laughs> Uh, the next scene is one of the most iconic moments in the film, I would say, and it is a flashback to um, Michael and James meeting where Michael has moved to New York and he's asking James, this illustrious club kid, for advice on how to be fabulous, how to work a room and how to become the toast of the town. I think these are, I mean, although these, these are club kids, these are also kind of drag skills as well and it's basically like how to how to how to get as as much attention as possible on yourself pretty much (laughs) literally uh, watching that that again with an analytical eye this was one of the main bits because i really uh, a bit to james i find that um as much as michael's like very charming and very social and things like that james is very like structured in the way that he's charming he's very structured in the way that he's social and i actually do have a drag mix that has that whole bit in it where I grab someone from the crowd and I'm like, just do what I do. And then I, I walk around and I make them do the whole bit. Uh, but you need quite a big room to make it work properly. So I only got to do it once. And I, I'm, I'm kind of sad I quit drag before I got an opportunity to do it somewhere else. Um, but it's one of my favourite bits because like, see watching that as like, because um, I started going to nightclubs when I was 15. Um, and then by the time I was 17, I got more involved in like the production of nights and stuff like that. So oh, I know it's like a whole thing. Um, but yeah, once I got to 17, I, I got more involved in the production and stuff of it. I started living with a DJ um, and we'd have these like fantastic nights and stuff. And watching that kind of, because I had no understanding of social cues in those kind of settings and how that worked, it was kind of like my sort of rule book on how this works so how to make friends how to be comfortable speaking to other people all that kind of stuff and that all stemmed from that scene um which i think i still very much you know have today i'm not afraid to be in a room full of strangers and it came from james St. james in that scene literally what i was gonna say was uh, uh, the thing that struck me was no publicity is bad publicity that's been around for years everyone knows that the second one which i think relates so much to the world that we live in right now once something is printed it's true 
And if right. you take the words printed and say, when something is tweeted, tweeted it's true, <laughs> fully. Where it's like, you know, newspapers make retractions all the time where they were like, oh, we, you know, we accidentally said this when we meant this. But it's page 47 and no one reads it. As mm-hmm. soon as something is in the, the sphere, it's very hard to say, no, that's fake news. Not to, not to validate that mm. fucking claim at all. But like, all mm. it takes is for one person to say something that even if it's disproved loads and loads throughout the time, there are people that hear that one thing and never listen to the rest and say that's truth. That, that is true because I saw it tweeted by Trump, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's wild. The other thing is, see that whole, you circle the room, you find a friend. I just wrote down, was this the script that we were given to run Queen? <laughs> Kind of. <laughs> no, not queen. Featuring shot limbo. <laughs> Walk around the room and say, "Have the other queens arrived yet?" <laughs> Has no. anyone seen Petit? I've lost Petit. <laughs> like... One last thing Wild. I'll add as well is that in a, in a lot of these drag films, a lot of the films will try and define drag and say, oh, drag is this. I think this film has a lot of moments that kind of define to the audience what being a club kid is. And there's one here that I think is kind of repeated later on. And it's the line, I don't do, I just am. And it's the idea that club mm-hmm. kids don't really do anything. They just are like living art. And that's, that's the kind of whole point of it. They're just there to be a spectacle and to create an experience and a moment. Um, and that's kind of like, it's repeated later on when they're doing the show in Dallas and then at the very, very end. But yeah, I think it's a, that's a pretty good description of what being a club kid is. You don't do, you just are. Yeah, you're kind of like a living, breathing um, sort of club decoration. You're there to make other people. I, I mean, you referenced Queen earlier. That's kind of what Queen was. We were just kind of there to be like, hello, we're pretty. Would you like to buy some drinks at the bar? And I like that. <laughs> I feel like that's at, because I've never touched drugs. Queen is the closest thing I'll ever get to the club kids party monster scene. Yeah, <laughs> it's carnage. a well-behaved party monster scene. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that bathtub is my <laughs> That's where COVID started, right in that bathtub. Honestly, truty. So I think one of the interesting things about that scene is when they actually go through the rules, they actually do end up breaking the rules. Um, because in the documentary, you see the whole, like, you know, don't say anything in print because you can never take it back. In the documentary, after Angel's been murdered, Michael Alec is fully like, yeah, I killed Angel, what of it? And things like that before he's been caught by the police. Um, and also things like don't do heroin. They do heroin frequently throughout the film and all that kind of thing. So... It's interesting that they set up the film in that way um, to sort of break each one of the rules. And I think that shows the deterioration of this uh, club scene from being this fairly structured club scene um, to being this chaotic, drug-filled nightmare, um, which is really why that scene died out, um, essentially. Um, So I thought that was really interesting how they went through each of the rules and broke them. Um, I also like that they do the the quote, which is, the road to excess leads to the palace of wisdom, which is the bit just before they leave the cafe, um, or the donut shop, sorry. And later on in the film, Michael tries to say that to a reporter where he says something like, the road to excess leads to fame or glitter or glamour or something like that. I can't remember what we'll get to that bit. I think he says um, fabulousness or something. Mm. Fabulousness, yeah. I'm sure that's when his mum's like in the club and the reporter's trying to talk to her. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, you're totally right, Lucy. Like the rules are all broken. And the other rule as well was not to work with uh, Peter, is it Gatian or Gatian? Peter Gatian. 
Peter Gation, who's a fantastically interesting person by themselves. He's got a documentary on YouTube. Like it's it's a documentary about him. He's not put it together, but uh, you know, if you want to do your further reading, um, I would definitely, definitely um, recommend it because it goes into a bit more detail about the club scene and and all that kind of stuff and then later on to sort of what Peter Gation did afterwards um which is also very very interesting so Mm -hmm. did he actually have an eye patch because that just seems so ridiculous he did have an eye patch if you look at old pictures of that I can't remember what happened to his eye I don't know if they mention it in the um in the yeah, I don't. I can't remember if they mentioned it in the documentary, but no, he literally did have an eye patch. Um, so yeah, Madam X, Madam X, yeah, Madam X is a is a club promoter, a, a club owner in New York. <laughs> literally, but yeah, we can kind of move on to the next scene because it kind of fits in quite well there. That is, despite James's warning, Michael goes off and organizes his first party at the Limelight, which is owned by Peter Gation. Um, of course, that club is like a legendary New York club that many folk began their career. But yeah, his first party is a complete mess. No one is there. But in spite of this, he's still offered the chance to continue working and make more parties from the owner, Peter, who is played by the eye-patched uh, Dylan McDermott. The next scene... Well, I think it's very interesting because at one point, um, Michael says he wants to be the next Andy Warhol. Now, Andy Warhol was synonymous with um, Studio 54. That was his playground. That's where the factory people all went. That was their playground. What's very interesting is Peter Gation's story kind of mirrors Michael Alex in that sense because Peter Gation saw Studio 54 and went, right, I want to be the next that. And that's where Limelight came from. So... Michael Alec was the new Andy Warhol and Limelight was the new Studio 54 and I think that's really interesting although it's not necessarily like teased out in the film because Studio 54 and stuff's not mentioned like Mm. in real life it does kind of mirror that which I think is super interesting Um, and again that's totally mentioned in the Peter Gation um, documentary. Andy Warhol as like a pop icon and a lot of his philosophies are definitely like inspire characters in this film. His whole idea of finding the underground superstars and celebrity culture and fame by any means necessary. And I think, yeah, they're very much inspired by him. And I think it's interesting that Warhol's death is acknowledged in the film as if these characters are kind of carrying on his legacy almost. Well, if you think about it, that was like the sort of alternative popular queer culture at the time. And then that almost like handed the baton to the club kids, which then sort of handed the baton to what we have now through RuPaul with Drag Race and and all the sort of queer culture that we have now, which is enough mainstream that people know who who RuPaul is and who most of the famous drag queens have been on it. Sorry, I won't keep talking about RuPaul. Um, But, you know, it's actually relevant to the story in this one. Um, So I think it's really interesting how you can see how, you know, the factory then led on to club kids that then led on to what we're in now, which is this, you know, um, sort of super world of the drag queens that we're in just now the most popular it's ever been mm, definitely yeah so thanks warhol um you're the reason why i got to prance about on a monday night cheers <laughs> literally would we be here without andy warhol no, no. <laughs> <laughs> the next scene uh michael is out flyering for his party and he meets kyoki who is played as we mentioned by vilmer Wilmer Valderrama, I can't even say his name. And he kind of begins his romance with him and they have a very romantic shag in a bin. Very Next to a cat, as you Been do. There. 
And then it kind of cuts to Christmas and James, Michael, Kiyoki and Peter are having din to get dinner together. Why can't I speak tonight? Din. They're having <laughs> din dinner to- together. <laughs> they're having dinner together. And Michael pees in James's champagne glass. Did that, do you reckon that actually happened? Oh, that is wild. You, so yes. in the shockumentary, there is so many references to Michael peeing in people's drinks, Michael peeing on people from balconies and things like that. Um, and just to touch back on the Kyoki stuff, what I think is really interesting is the development of their own little language, like the scrog, the scrog lada, all that kind of stuff, mm. because we as queer people do kind of create our own language. Like, I joke that if anyone looked at See. Scottish drag Twitter, they'd have no idea what we're saying between all, like, the divas, I don't think, all this kind of stuff. Like, we do kind of speak in our own little language, and I think queer people do kind of speak our own little language. Like, it's the same reason that, um, like, siblings make up their own little twin language so they can share that little bond and be separate from everyone else. I think queer people do that just on a bigger scale. Totally. Um and I quite like how the film mirrors something that is just a natural queer thing to do. Just make up your own little words and languages. I think one of the other things to note here is this is the first time and we see it from Michael on two separate occasions where it definitely speaks to his personality and the type of person that he is that he sees them. And he goes, uh, you're going to be my, my new boyfriend. You're going to be my girlfriend. There's no... it's." consensual and like the least form it's this thing of yes Kiyoki is it says that bit where he's like oh I I didn't think I'd be going home with you tonight I thought I'd be say not tonight to a few girls and and go home and do whatever but like obviously Kiyoki is consenting but Michael walks up and says you're going to be my new boyfriend here's drink tickets yeah, um, it's that charm Michael has that he can get anyone to do anything. He went to Peter Gation and said, I'm going to throw a club night and then I'm going to flood your basement. And he went, okay, let's do this. And you see it later on in the film where Michael will just be like, can I have? And people go, okay, since it's you. like, And I think totally. the reason why Michael doesn't get away with it in the end is because I think he expects that behaviour by that point. Mm. He expects to be like, can I just have this? And they go, yeah, sure. But when he says to the police, like, hey, can I have this? They're like, look, we'll do you a deal if you write out Peter Gation, but no, you can't have it. And I think that's when Michael gets that, like, cold sense of reality because he's mm. spent his whole life... I mean, his mum's an enabler. The mum yeah. in the first We'll scene, get to you know, the mum. Oh, oh, my God. I mean, she's kind of a queen, but definitely an enabler, so... yeah. yeah. <laughs> Queen, Definitely. but queen who needs restraints. <laughs> yes. Much like the I feel like there, queen. I feel like there needed to be another parent there just to balance that out. <laughs> totally, <laughs> totally, totally. When that was uh, a way to be famous, and, you know, they, they weren't living in a social media world there where people talked and word got around and you were held as accountable for your actions. But, like, one of the ways to be famous was to be the Katie Hopkins, for use of a better term. Mm-hmm. Like, the, mm-hmm. the hated, like, annoying person that goes around the party and is, oh, she's fucking pissed again and she's misbehaving well, again. Like Michael Musto speaks about it because he, um, he was a journalist in New York at the time, very much ran with the club kids. And to this day, like, he's still writing stuff about Jeffree Star and he has this really unique way of writing where he'll be like... Um, like Mr. Makeup fell out with you know Miss Chicken Nugget and like it'll be talking about like um, Jeffree Star and Trisha Paytas and stuff but he used to do this back in the day where um, he, he actually said in the documentary that um, he was like Michael Alec was a breath of fresh air because it was the 80s it was Reagan it was Thatcher it was very straight laced it was very you know you Gordon Gekko kind of era and then you've got this like 
mental kid just running about in these ridiculous boots spitting and peeing on people and he said it was almost like a breath of fresh air because of how straight laced things were then mm-hmm. i mean i don't think i'd appreciate a glass of pee personally yeah um no shade to clear <laughs> successfully but not with champagne <laughs> in it at least <laughs> no no piss with bubbles no thank you um <laughs> um i uh yeah i think i I can understand why people did see this like it's almost the reason why like grunge was popular why punk was popular because it was this like gritty subculture that people just are drawn to fully especially when i mean if you look at the political situation at the time like reagan and stuff like that they were rolling back a lot of like um, progressive things that had been put in place in the 60s and 70s they were rolling a lot of that back so that's just a reaction to that I, I jotted down here, it was another kind of set of James's rules that I found quite amusing, and it was James's DJing the rules. DJ, and number one oh. was Studio 54 soundtrack, which I guess is the only reference to Studio 54 in the film, which yeah. is quite important. Because it comes there. pre-mixed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> pre-mixed. You know, I was, so I was meant to be DJing on Friday night um, on uh, like online, but unfortunately we had multiple technical issues. You, you know her, she's at every show. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, we, uh, we couldn't get it done. <laughs> and because I've been watching the film so much, I went out for a cigarette at one point and I was like, just play the Studio 54 album. It's all pre-mixed like, in my head. And I was like, mm, no, <laughs> don't think Jordan Delight would like that. So maybe I'll just play normally. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, number one was Studio 54. Number two was just Madonna because it, Madonna was, it will always, always go down. Works. Yeah. Yep. And then number three was techno and your sound cutting edge. So those are the rules well, of DJing. Do you know what's interesting about that? So the video for Deeper and Deeper by Madonna, I absolutely swear was shot in limelight because if you watch it, it looks like the inside of limelight. Um, and that would have been round about that era. Um, watch so, by the way, Deeper and Deeper. Right? Oh. Oh, love that! Check when it came out and where the video was filmed while we were talking. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's round about that era. Very quickly, Michael's parties explode, and he becomes the king of the club kids in New York. And even his mum is at these parties, and she proclaims, "Anyone can be a club kid." Uh, I, I guess at this point we could kind of talk about his mum, who we're seeing earlier. Not sure about 25, like, apparently. Is uh, yeah, exactly. She's the one that gets a pass. There's always one old woman hanging about the scene, like I'm that for our scene. Um, <laughs> well, actually, let's put a pin in the mum and come back to her after the daytime talk show because I true. think that's a, that's when we get to see the full gambit of the mum. True, 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 true. We'll come back to her. We'll come back to her. The next scene is quite a fun one, and it's all the club kids on this bus. Now, I think this is just like high camp to me. There's this massive uh, bus or kind of lorry thing uh, driven by Christina Superstar, who's off her tits on ecstasy. And just the, 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 the mental image of someone in a high heel pushing an accelerator, it just makes me laugh. It's like, oh. I, I just think of like Miss Piggy and the Muppets, like driving. It just makes me think of that. <laughs> yes. um, and of course, immediately the police raid this van. Um, and this is also the first scene where we see Angel who yep. uh, walks up to the van and Michael asks him to close the doors. Um, what do you guys think of the scene? Is that the first time we see Angel? Yeah, it is. Uh, I thought we saw him sitting oh, in his living room before. Yeah, so we see him oh, sitting in his yeah. living room. With Interestingly enough, so he's sitting in his living room with his brother behind him, and the inclusion of the brother is quite important because in, in real life, his brother was the one who was like, my brother is missing, someone needs to do something, and he was the one that was putting the pressure on 
to to find Angel. So I like that they include the F word while they're sitting watching the TV, right? Yeah, I mean, this was like 88 or something like that by this point. So, um, I mean, I think that was just a generally used term at the time. Um, yeah, that's so, how you said um, Like, hey, girl. Yeah, basically. <laughs> um, but it's the first time Angel is um, sort of with the main cast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I, think it's, I think it's really interesting because the first couple of times you see Angel with the main cast, it's either sort of towards the end of a party or he's being asked to do something where he's not included, which means his hunger and want to be included is, is going to be so much more. You know, if you, show up, if you show up to Dell's right at the very end of Suck, then you're going to be like, right, next week I'm going to be here on time because I want to see the rest of this. <laughs> um, you, you know, that, that want to, to be included and be part of it because you feel the atmosphere, you see the people. It's, it's going to make you do almost anything to be included. And, you know, that led Angel down a path where he ended up getting murdered. Um, mm. Not that it was his fault, of course, but it put him in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, really? What I also think is worth mentioning definitely at this point is... Um, now, the club kids were predominantly white. I believe RuPaul was one of the only f- people who were not white that were part of that group. And RuPaul, at the time, used to describe themselves as a white woman when they were in drag. Um, and when you see the police interaction with them, the police interaction is quite light and quite tame, particularly because these people are breaking laws left, right and centre. They usually had some kind of benefactor who could bail them out. Um, now, if you look at one of um, Peter Gation's other clubs called The Tunnel, which was mostly hip-hop music and stuff, it was predominantly black people. And the police interaction there, even though there was less drugs, less fights, less illegal law-breaking and things like that, the police interaction there is entirely different compared to what the police interaction was like with Limelight and the parties associated with it. And I think because of the world that we're in right now, it's definitely worth pointing out that these people got a pass on a lot of things oh, because they were predominantly white. Um, They were predominantly white and believe me, it's not just the casting of the film when you look back on it, they're predominantly white. Um, There's some um, Latinx people and stuff like that, but it tends to be light skinned people Mm. um, that are involved. So was Angel Latinx? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I can't remember where, I think maybe Honduras or maybe Puerto Rico, but um, Puerto Rico. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a fantastic point. Yeah, fantastic. Definitely worth pointing out and one thing I always find like mind-boggling is they were doing all these crazy illegal things, doing all these drugs, and kind of living these lifestyles that were just so ridiculous that I I I, I, I was I always think like how do the club kids make money? They they cannot just make money by just going out and like partying because even even if you're just doing that, it's, you can't live in New York for that. Um, but even to this day, and I, I think it's even with the club kids that are living in New York these days, a lot of the time, and it is kind of briefly mentioned in the film, is it's trust funds. And it's because they yeah. actually do come from quite wealthy backgrounds or their family has wealth somewhere or they got inheritance and they're just living off that pretty much. Um, and even and, when, and- when I was in New York, there was club kids who are still about today who are like young who are like living off just like family money and that's that's how they can live these crazy lifestyles so yeah it is worth pointing out there is a definite like a, a racial inequality there and like a class inequality as well and a lot of the people who didn't have that kind of background who didn't come from money they would have some kind of wealthy benefactor i mean we're looking at the same time period as pose for example if you are a slim young gay man in manhattan you will have someone who will pay your way. Actually, in one of the um, 
talk shows, like one of the actual real ones I watched, I think it was the um, Geraldo one from like 1993, because I, I watched them for fun. Um, nice nighttime viewing. And, um, the, you know, there were a point that someone in the audience and he was like, well, could this could be a club kid? And um, he was like, yeah, anyone can be a club kid. And he was like, kid, do you have any money? And he was like, no, I don't have any money. And Michael literally says, like the real Michael Alec is like, if you come to New York, someone will pay your way for you there's always going to be a rich man somewhere with a wife and kids at home who likes to spend his Friday and Saturday nights in the city. You're going to have your, you're going to have an apartment. You're going to have an allowance. And that still happens now. Totally. Um, and to, just to relay back to the, the racial inequality there, I think it plays into the, the storytelling which goes on, which the police, even at Limelight, they're aware of all the stuff that's going on, but they're holding back to, to like get someone for tax evasion they're holding yeah. back to get to Gation for a bigger crime and it just shows that like they're happy to go into tunnel and you know um, police it heavily for drug use and they know that that's going on at the limelight but they're holding off on that because it doesn't serve them to incarcerate mm-hmm. these white people for drugs but then when mm-hmm. they know it's there and there's someone else to get to they're like we'll ignore the drugs if you do x y and z for us and yeah, um, yeah. So and it shows the police time, motivation and at the time there was the crack epidemic which was predominantly in black neighborhoods because the government put the crack there in the first place um so these black neighborhoods in new york are getting heavily policed for drugs and things like that so in their mind, a couple silly white kids in New York who have influential parents were not their concern when you were looking at black neighborhoods that were being overly policed, overly sanctioned compared to these kids. I mean, if they're wanting to fill jails full of black people, they're not going to put someone like Michael Alley in jail for a long time unless he really fucks up, which he does do. So the next scene at a party, Michael and Kiyoki are fighting and Michael kind of spirals and then he begins taking drugs, which is quite like an important point in the film because prior to this, he was not into drugs at all. And he, I think he, I think he does mention his mum saying that his mum told him that drugs are bad for me, shouldn't do them. Um, I think he said, this, I think the mum's quote is drugs are for losers. Yeah, I, I think it was, it's very was that. like, well... You're about to become a Gleek with an L on your forehead. I think Uh, it's meant to play the fact that at the time Nancy Reagan obviously had this big like say no to drugs campaign which like Corey Feldman and stuff were all involved in even though they were taking shed loads of drugs you know behind the scenes so I think Mm -hmm. it's meant to sort of mirror the sort of idea of the time of like drugs are for losers, drugs are bad but secretly everyone young Mm -hmm. was doing drugs time like everyone was doing it at the secretly time. michael alex's mum's like cat solve my headache oh <laughs> that is such a funny bit when um, they're in the talk show and it's like um oh did your son give you ecstasy and she's like um well he gave me a headache pill and he's like and what happened and she's like my headache went away <laughs> classic one-liners you know but the next the next few scenes the friendship between michael and james is growing but so is their drug addiction um, and they decide to make a superstar drug dealer who they believe will become instantly popular in the club scene, and that, of course, becomes Angel. Now, kind of going back to the whole racial thing as well, I mean, like, the character of Angel is one of the few, like, non-white characters in the film, and I think it's, it to me, it's kind of troubling that they kind of treat him like a drug slave in a way, where he's his only purpose is to be like this dealer to them. And in a way, I kind of wish the film itself had 
shown more of his story. Like, I feel like we don't know a lot about him other than his connection to Michael and James. Um, he's just kind of there, like, as a prop to supply drugs and then be killed. Yeah, because if you look Is at his contrast oh. with Freeze, oh, sorry. If you look at his contrast no, no. with Freeze, who's also a drug dealer, Freeze is white. And um, although Freeze is involved in the sort of final um, act kind of bit, um, he is, you know, there's a bit more character development with him. He seems to be a bit more vocal when it comes to like them going down to Texas and all that kind of stuff. Whereas Angel just shows up and either gives him drugs or eventually asks for money. Mm. There's not any real character development past. Like, Angel has a brother. That's really all we know. Uh, you totally hit my point on the head. That that whole thing of um, it's the, it's it's what was I going to say? Oh, I remembered. Um, it's that thing of like, see when you watch things today about tragedies, about massacres, about whatever it is. Let's say it's like a school shooting or anything to do with people being murdered. The emphasis should always be on the victim. The emphasis should be about telling the story of the people who don't get to walk away after it. And I, f I feel like there, there's a conversation definitely about this film as to whether m whether Angel's memory or legacy was like uplifted by the telling of this story or whether it falls into the narrative of like glamorizing the person who did the bad things. Well, you know, we see it like... like gets to live in infamy, which is all he wanted. I mean, this is a man who used exactly. to piss on drinks. There's a bit in the shockumentary where they had like a wheel spin thing for whether Michael had hepatitis at some point, or was it mono? I think he had mono, and he kept kissing people in clubs, and people would take bets on who would get mono next off him. Like, that man wanted to live in infamy. He wanted to do that. And now he gets to live in infamy. Like, he's immortalised in a book, a documentary, and a, and a film. Whereas Angel... I, yeah, I, I think it speaks yeah. to like I think it speaks to the type of filmmaking that was done then versus now, and even the type of reporting. Like, think about um, I always think about when I think of Pulse, and I remember that they didn't like publicize the shooter's name because they were like, it's not mm -hmm. about him, and you should not know his name. You should know the names of the victims and stuff. And I think that this this film speaks to a time where people were more interested in the perpetrator than the victim. And that's a shame yeah. because I, I wish we got to know more of Angel's story, how Angel ended up in that place. Cause this is, it should be a story about Angel's tragic, you know, death and not, the person who got away with it and mm. laughs at the end, you know? Yeah, I think now we're a more caring, considerate people, whereas then, like, Michael Alec was like an anti-hero. Like, people could relate to him. People liked him. People still do. Um, which is true, because as much as I, like, you know, my face lights up when I talk about this film because it reminds me of being younger and a lot of my personality traits have come from things like the James of Jane scene that I mentioned earlier. As much as there is all that michael alex is a horrible person he murdered mm -hmm. someone like that's yeah. the crux of it the guy's a drug dealer he's awful he was terrible to people like most of the people he used to target and things like that would be like bar staff who were working in new york in the late 80s early 90s so they were making an absolute pittance to get on a train mm -hmm. for an hour to go to a dirty horrible part of the city where there was still riots and things like that that happened regularly like he used to pick on you know the the lowest people in the sort of hierarchy of that scene for fun he's a terrible person he's an awful person but because of his charm he gets away with a lot mm. and because of the way he's portrayed in this film you do actually quite like michael throughout the film when he's saying the funny things on the talk shows and stuff you do quite like him 
Um, so yeah, it's a, it's it's interesting. It's I, interesting. I just think that yeah. it speaks right. to the changes that have been made since then, where people might look at this film and go, "Well, he killed someone, and now everyone knows his name. I'm going to do the same." And I think it's not so much about where we are as a society, but I think it's about what is the intent of making this film and if it's to honor the victim that is a great intent of something like this but i think the reason we don't see you know you see many films about death and about murder it's its, its own category but the emphasis and the focus should always be on this person is horrible this person is terrible and not this person was they, they did a bad thing but look how great the rest of their life was before it mm -hmm. and i I don't think it quite hits that balance at all. Yeah, it's very much a product of its time. At the time, yeah. like I'm, like as I said at the start, Perez Hilton was my news source at the time. Like people were loving the fact that people like Paris Hilton, Lindsay Lohan, and Britney Spears, all those people were all being crap people at the time. They were you know, being publicised for being horrible to each other. Not so much Britney Spears, to be honest. She was a victim more than anything else and all mm. that. Um, but you had people like Paris Hilton, who was just horrible to people. She was horrible to people. She was terrible to her dogs. She was awful. Um, but people loved that. And I kind of feel like people are starting to go that way again. And I'm just like, no, guys, come on. We've, we've learned these lessons. Let's come to the ground good ourselves, sides. come back to reality again. Um, mm. So I think just at the time, people just loved outrageousness. They, in the mid-2000s when this film was made, they loved outrageousness. It didn't matter if someone was bad and fame was everything. Um, and, you know, then we end up with the culture we have now where you will get called out. You do need to be accountable for your actions. You do need to um, apologise for things that you do wrong. Whereas at the time, people would do things wrong and be celebrated for it because it's like, oh, look oh. at you. And that's why people like Trump ended up being popular. Mm, exactly. <laughs> It's, it's this film it's is back quite to the theme that you said at the top, which was excess and fame. Exactly, yeah, money, success, fame, glamour. This film is quite a a specific case because it's the first film we've done that's kind of based on a true story. I guess other than Kinky Boots to like an extent, but that's a bit more loose. But we're kind of looking at it in our current lens. But the film was made in the two thousands, but then it's set in like the eighties, nineties. So it's a lot of different like angles to look at look look at it through and also analyze it and kind of see where we've moved past that and grown and changed and what have you okay so yeah there's the various scenes of uh, michael and james abusing drugs and then we find out that christine christina superstar has died but in spite of this michael still throws the party he was planning and this time it's in a fast food restaurant and he walks up to the cashier and orders 300 burgers. Angel arrives and he now has his wings and he becomes part of Michael and James's crew. Uh, but mostly, as I said, is this kind of servant slash drug slave person. So that party was actually a real party. That was on, and Ru, you'll know this. Um, you know the McDonald's on Times Square? Uh-huh. That was there. They literally walked wow. into that McDonald's and ordered 300 burgers and just like had a party in the McDonald's. It's the same as I'm sure the subway parties around about then as well, which they actually use real footage of. Crazy. Um, and so the real, the, so the subway um, party that you see in the film is actually the same footage that you see in the documentary because I mean they're not going to shut down the New York subway just to shoot that especially not on that budget <laughs> no no absolutely not. I don't even think Avengers could do that um but yeah so you see some of the original um sort of club kids in those scenes as well um 
I think Richie Rich pops up in the burger shop as well because, as I said, Richie Rich would literally show up to the opening of an envelope. Um, don't think he's got much on now. Paris Hilton's no needed address in 12 years, so he's fine. Um, <laughs> but yeah, th- this part of the film kind of documents this rise and fall of the club kids. And as we like mentioned earlier quite a few times, they appeared on so many talk shows in the 90s. They were on Geraldo, they were on Joan Rivers. And we have this fake talk show hosted by John Stamos. And again, we have the line from the, the club kids that we don't do, we just are. And I think these looks, I think, are recreations, especially yeah. the James St. James one with the, the troll. I, I remember seeing that. That's the 1990 Geraldo um, show that they do, um, because that's where Michael's look comes from. Um, and that's the one that has RuPaul on it with the ramen noodle hair. Um, and in the film, this is where Amanda Lepore appears, looks stunning for Amazing. four and a half seconds. So you don't see her the rest of the film. <laughs> identical um, she's not aged a day she's literally not changed years. at all fully no. that woman will never age and i thank her for that because i need that she's the only current uh, she's the only stable thing i have in my life um <laughs> and do you know what i think it's really interesting about that talk show moment is he so when they all walk on and they do their their catwalk bit he goes oh wow and it's not even our halloween show which i think is really interesting because if you know we flash forward to to now to now um We've got Wendy Mil- Wendy Williams, who had um, Erica Tour from Hey Queen. So she tried to go and sit in the audience, which you can do for the Wendy Williams show, and basically was told no, even though she was literally just, you know, she's, she dresses very, like, you know, fun and fabulously. But because she's a trans woman, they were basically like, no, but if you'd like to come back, you can sit in the audience for a Halloween show. And she was like, um okay <laughs> no so i think it's really interesting that lessons haven't been learned you know no. 30 years later and it's wow. funny how that's still a line that basic people use towards kind of outlandish or queer people is that oh is the is the is, is it halloween like what they, they just don't understand like why anyone would feel a need to dress unconventionally yeah, I was um, criticised in a newspaper recently by a member of the public. I won't go into it. Um, I wasn't named, thankfully. Um, but he did say that I was in fancy dress. And I was like, oh, wow. Uh, I was actually just in a fairly normal outfit. It was actually what it's, it's on my Instagram. It's a recent picture where I just had like an orange hat and orange top and shorts. And I was with Chanel, who was wearing all black. And they were like, they're in fancy dress. And I was like, no, we're not. Um, <laughs> wild, the idea of what fancy dress is to like normies. Anything other than a pair of jeans, and it's like you're in fancy dress. I know. I had a single lash on, and like <laughs> I plucked my wig. I don't understand what the issue was here. <laughs> you're like, oh no, honey, I've not even. Uh, this is just the face. I need to put the outfit on when I get <laughs> yeah. to the disabled toilet that's at the gig at the venue. Yeah, fully, fully. <laughs> so now that we're on the talk show, we can talk about the mum in detail because I I think that it's a dilemma the mum poses the the statement of as long as they're not hurting anyone like go do what you want be free express yourself and I agree with that as a statement on its own however when you look at you know Michael's behavior as we've seen it throughout this film he is hurting a lot of people he's dragging people into a world that they might not have been in otherwise he is making their lives you know, miserable by his behaviour, by how he treats them. You know, James, to an extent, is is impacted 
in a bad way by Michael's behaviour. Yes, they're friends, but like um, the, the, the thing that I question about the mum is she kind of loves it and she's like, oh, I'm out at the parties and I can do it too. And the way that it was acted, at least, I looked at it and I was like, this feels a bit stage mum. Like, she wanted him to be famous so she could tag on and be like, I'm the mum of a famous person. That's why she's like, I get the limos and I'm treated a certain way. When she's like, oh, he started selling candy bars. It's like, you, it's a bit stage mum for me, the energy. Yeah, I think she was very much like she liked the idea of her son being a success and from yeah. what she could see her son was a success but also like you know she she is still living in the midwest she doesn't see the extent of the drug use she doesn't see all this and that that's why like during the, the end of the talk show scene when michael's like i don't feel well i feel kind of ill and james is like yeah because he's got like heroin withdrawals she's almost like that, that there's almost like a sweet moment between James and um, Michael's mum because it's almost like one caretaker to another because she spent our she's spent the start of Michael's life looking after him and now James is having mm. to sort of take on that role of looking after Michael and being you know the one that gets him out of trouble and um, even Michael using James's name and stuff to, when he got arrested and that scene when they're talking about it it's like he, he's sort of comforting her she kind of blames him but she's he's still kind of comforting her to be like look you know, I get why you're upset. Let me take you to the bus station. And she's like, I came here in a limo. I'm not having this. Um, so she doesn't see the extent of Michael. She still sees Michael as being that like entrepreneurial child. She yeah. can't face the reality that Michael's actually more than this, you know, golden boy that she's sort of, you know, made up in her Boston. head that he is. Yeah. Yeah. This is a very weird reference, but the mum kind of reminded me of, if any of you guys have seen the documentary, Don't Fuck With Cats, the mother of Luca Magnotta, who just sees her son as like this beautiful little boy who was talented and ambitious, and she can't see that he's like this crazy murderer. And it's kind of as, that's the way that I see it. And I think that some parents just, like I think a good parent would accept that their child is not perfect and not just like go along with it so yeah the mum's pretty mm -hmm. fucked up definitely a good think... parent can separate the child as a human being from the child and the actions they perpetrate as someone in society and i think michael's mum is very like i raised this boy he was so sweet when he was younger she can't see that that develops and that changes through time it's very yeah. you nailed it she still sees him as that little entrepreneurial spark that moved to new york and is able to pay rent so must be doing well yeah and i think because i'm into true crime as well and you see it a lot with like serial killers and and that kind of thing like their mum's like a narcissist by proxy they're so hyper proud of this you know established amazing person that they're completely willing to not recognize the bad at mm. all so you know when she's like so proud of her boy and all this kind of thing she's just not acknowledging the fact that he's not a good person um, willingly and him. willfully ignorant they don't want to see that side of them so they don't pay attention yeah. to it it's the same as serial killers they'll be like oh but you know yeah he might have killed all these people but it was really sweet to his cat that he lived with for years like they will always they will make excuses and they'll say but there was a human underneath and that almost makes it worse for people where they're like i'd rather see a cold killing machine or in this case like a cold killing machine i'd rather he was just a yeah. a, a compassionless you know robot psychopath 
when you're mm-hmm. like, oh, he was a human being, he was complicated, that makes it worse. Yeah. And that feeds his narcissism. It's a two-way thing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll, like, we'll discuss it more towards the end when we, when we do our final thoughts in the film, but I think one of my like, main gripes with this film is I think it tries too hard to humanise Michael. And I kind of wish yeah. that he was just a pure villain. I, I wish he was just evil. And I get that they want to do that. They want to like show different sides to him. But um, there's a particular scene later on that we'll discuss in a bit that, that kind of does bother me. Um, but we'll come to that later on. Anyway, so the next scene is the club kids are doing this cross-country road, to, road trip to recruit more club kids. And they're in Dallas, Texas, and they meet a couple of kind of club kid fangirls. There's Brooke, who is played by Natasha Leone, who is TV and films Icon. number one lesbian, mm-hmm. who isn't actually lesbian. Um, and she's making oh, a drug. She's ours. We've adopted her. Yeah. She's one of ours. <laughs> <laughs> the original Darren Chris for the lesbian. Yes, yeah. Really. Who's making a drug salad. Lovely. And her friend, is it Gitsy, her name is? I was like, Gitsy, yeah. yeah. What a weird name, Gitsy, uh, who's yeah. played by uh, kind of 90s it girl, Chloe Sevigny. Um, yeah, an indie film wasn't allowed to happen in the nineties, two thousands without her being somewhere involved. So, yeah, <laughs> and they become kind of like new sidekicks slash kind of what would you call them? Like um, groupies? Uh, yeah, yeah, kind of. Um, so Michael, like you see it in the um, Christmas scene when he invites Peter and things like that. And he, Michael's desperate for a family. Michael wants to have a family. So what he does is he fills his apartment with all these people because you see the bit when it's like, oh, you can come and live with us. And James is like, um, well, we already have this person, this person, this yeah. person living at mine. <laughs> um, so he he's trying to create this like family. So he's like, Gitsy, you're going to be my girlfriend now. And, um, you know, Brooke, you're going to come and live with us. And, um, you know, James is already living there because his family have basically disowned him after Michael, you know, made jokes about him at a publication, which again was one of the rules that were broken um, about him um, child trafficking. So his family cut him off and, and things like that. So he just wants to create this little family unit. Um, and... Uh, they, you, you see um, Gitsy in the um, at home again, very similar to Angel, watching it on TV and being like, oh, "They're amazing! I want to be part of that." Um, so yeah, and uh, then becomes his girlfriend, which is very interesting. Essentially, mm. kinda. What I do want to mention with the um, Dallas scene because I, I love relating things back to myself is um, if you've ever been to Tracks. Um, you will know that like most um, shows will have a song that they play before the show starts and it kind of is an indicator to the people who regularly go it's always jimmy james mm-hmm. you know everybody line up yeah it's yeah. always that but for us ours is money success fame glamour because i love this movie i'm obsessed with this movie and i think it shaped me as an artist and also nothing says chanel o'connor more than money success fame glamour so if you ever <laughs> come to tracks, if you've ever been to tracks you will know that that is the song that we start off with um and when they're asked to do their performance um they literally just have a sort of techno beat playing macaulay culkin as michael alec grabs the um the sort of loudspeaker and just barks random comments down it um which is the exact kind of music that i vibe to so i really love this whole scene <laughs> that's so, the slam poetry yeah. night that we need in glasgow basically. totally yes. I, I think <laughs> alongside the donut shop scene at the start i think this is the other most iconic scene in the film and i hadn't for some reason i didn't realize this that that song was made for this film right mm-hmm 
And I had no idea that the person doing the vocals is Macaulay Culkin. That's kind of iconic, yeah. actually. And it's it's a great song. And I, as you say, like it's kind of like a staple of drag shows and queer events. So a, yeah. a truly iconic moment. The whole soundtrack is really, really amazing. Again, mm. this is to add to your further reading. Um, definitely listen to the soundtrack. Lots of iconic music is on there. Um, and it's really fun music to get ready to go out and listen to i mean i, I know that's not going to happen anytime soon but you know when you're getting geared up for your house party meeting with the gals and um, chuck that on and it's just you know it comes pre-mixed and you can play it anywhere um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, yeah like i i was um i was listening to it earlier and a lot of the songs are again like songs that are regularly performed by drag performers like um frank sinatra yeah, by miss me kitten. tonight yeah frank sinatra by miss kitten i think everyone's done that at some yeah. point i think it's an echo's repertoire um give me tonight the um one you know there's an iconic azure performance where she's doing like the sort of robot yeah kind of movements that's give me tonight the shannon song um which is again another absolute chef's kiss of a moment in music um but yeah that texas scene where they do money success fame glamour there's just something about everything to do with that where i don't know it just speaks to me i like the idea of just going and doing it doesn't really need to be anything but as long as there's an audience and they appreciate it i'm always a fan of that that's takeover tuesdays yeah (laughs) (laughs) going and doing and the audience appreciating it (laughs) yes Okay, so the next few scenes are just more drug benders of Peter and Michael and Gitsy, and they end up in a hotel room just doing tons of drugs. Angel arrives demanding money, um, but Michael overdoses and ends up in hospital. Um, but he very quickly uh, kind of self-discharges himself, um, and he proclaims the show must go on. And he rather kind of darkly holds a medical theme party. So I guess that it all kind of feeds into Michael's kind of dark sense of humour. This really shows Michael and his whole like, I'm going to do my own thing by just, you know, like grabbing, you know, the the sort of saline solution next to him and being like, okay, let's make this into a party. Um, Because like the whole theme with Michael is that he can make something out of nothing. And here he is in this absolute lowest of lowest moment. And then it's like, boom, let's make it into this gigantic party. And you can see how vast the party is from the party scenes and stuff. Um, but then they kind of bring him back down towards the, the end of that scene, which I, I won't move on next to move on to next if CJ <laughs> wants to add anything. Uh, the only thing I was going to say was like, it's an indication of Michael not like facing the music and like, like living in reality. He's like, oh, just overdose, time to host another party. Um, and I think it speaks to, um, I think the same way we saw with when Christine died, he was like, well, I've been planning this party, so we're just going to do it anyway. He is so hungry and desperate for the fame and the excess that he's like, if I pause for two seconds, I might lose it. So it's like, these are my 15 minutes. I need to make the most of them. I need to keep going. Hell be the cost of whatever that is, you know? I think at the time as well, death was kind of treated differently in that kind of circle because the thing is, you're just coming out of the AIDS pandemic. This is shot round about the same time as Pose to give people a reference point. So you've got people who have um, unfortunately succumbed to like AIDS and HIV. You've got people who are dying left, right and centre because of drugs. Um, so a death is normal. 
people death is normal there a death that happens now in mm. our own groups is a tragedy yeah and it's a huge thing whereas then it was you know a, a phone call you got every couple of months so the idea of his own mortality wasn't a big fear for him because he's like oh, i could die at any moment like it's not Truth. seen as being as serious or as cared about as maybe we would look at it mm. it's, that's, that that yeah. context gives gives you know, credence to the way that they continually act. It's not like, oh fuck, like she died, we need to do it. It's like people are dying, literally dying left, right and centre so you did have to just keep it pushing. Mm. Yeah, I think if you talk to any queer person over sort of 40 years old, they will tell you about like the 80s and 90s where you know, regular deaths was not an unusual thing. And not Gary's being able to mourn to the deaths. He knows yeah. these <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He was playing there, I remember. I was there too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like deaths, and not just that as well, you weren't allowed to mourn deaths because a lot of these people either didn't have um, families that would allow you to come to the funeral or weren't out. So you weren't allowed to properly mourn. You just had to get on with it. That's, um, it's, it is so, that's it's so wild thinking about it. So wild. And I think for, for, for folk our, our age, we just never even like, I don't, I don't think we appreciate that enough really. Um, yeah, a very valid point, definitely. And I think it's something important to realise when you watch this film, that what, what that culture was like back then. Um, That's my old lady perspective. <laughs> <laughs> so the next scene, we have the character of Natasha, who is Peter's wife or partner, I believe. And the kind wife. Of, wife. Yeah, wife. Yeah. Um, who also seems to have some power over these venues. She ends Michael's relationship with the club and thus kind of cutting off his livelihood because um, I kind of got the vibe that she never liked him or his manipulation of Peter. Um, She's one lost. of the few that Michael's charm doesn't work on. Exactly, yeah. 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 But yes, at an event, Michael, after a long period, meets Kyoki, who is now the successful DJ, and he asks if they want to kind of rekindle the, the relationship, but P- Kyoki is too busy. I find this strange because I think they they did develop a lot of Kyoki's character and I feel like he, he could have been removed from the story and it would not really have changed anything and I kind of wish that in his place they had given more to Angel really well, actually um, I, I kind of disagree with you oh, really? because Kyoki, yeah because his and Kyoki's relationship kind of um it timelines the downfall of Michael so sorry I need to cough oh true actually yeah so um yeah, so it starts off with Michael being like this, like, okay, this is my budding club promoter thing, and then Kyoki becomes a big part of that. Kyoki is the comfortable, sensible relationship that builds him up to that. And then when things start to go south with Kyoki, that's when Michael, start, like, for example, the big party scene where he throws the cake down, and that's when he decides to start taking Kyoki's drugs. That's mm. the sort of start of the downfall. Yeah. And then you've got the moment where... Um, it's much later on, but when Michael's sort of at the depths of despair just before the murder happens, after he's been fired from the club, where Kyoki comes over and he's like, Hey, are you okay? I'm going to take you to rehab. And even like the cat is significant because the cat, when they first get the cat, although it's not featured very much, it's like this new hope and this new promise and this new life almost because they treat it like their child. And then when it gets to the point where Kyoki goes around to be like, Hey, Michael, we're going to take you to rehab, and he sees the cat's dead, he's like, mm. Nah, this relationship's dead. Yeah. And that's when Michael fully goes off the deep end. Um, so I think his and Kyoki's relationship is mirrored and also Kyoki was a famous DJ so it's probably good to include him in the story somewhere um, I don't personally rate his music much but yeah he was like going to Ibiza and doing all these crazy club events and stuff at the time he really did blow up from that scene 
Mm. I agree with you, Ruth. I was kind of like, oh, Kiyoki's not the central part of this or whatever. But I think the inclusion of Kiyoki is to show that, like, you know, he picked him up on the street at a random club and he did turn him into this superstar. And I think it was to show that, like, Michael would actually find someone and be like, you're my next person. And they would reach that level of height. And obviously we are meant to believe that he chose Kyoki and then he chose Angel. So I think it's to show, like, how Michael could control the narrative of someone being that next superstar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think Kyoki acts more as a timestamp than anything else. Yeah. He just... See. See. stamps the sort of the the rise the sort of plateau and then the fall yeah i think you're totally right lucy actually i think yeah definitely the cat i think is the symbol of their relationship that when they first came together they found the cat and then when the cat dies that is the that symbolizes the end of them i guess for me the way that i the way that i felt about it was that kyoki was just kind of an extension of michael's storyline in the, in the in the film and on one hand it kind of humanizes him in the sense that it shows that he can be like normal and have like a relationship and be in love, but equally also shows that he's incredibly selfish. Like in this scene right here, um, as soon as Kyoki is saying, oh yeah, I'm busy, I'm off like in Europe and touring and stuff, Michael disappears because Michael does not give a single fuck about like Kyoki's career or anything. He just wants any, any means of him finding his success that's all he cares about. He does not care about anyone else. So I guess yeah, he, he doesn't. He, he doesn't care that Kyoki's a superstar. He wants Kyoki to be Michael's superstar. Yeah. So yeah, Kyoki it's... being a superstar in his own right is just no use to him, and it's no good to him. He doesn't care at that point. Totally, totally. Poor cat. Uh, no, poor cat. That was given drugs. Poor not cat. cute, mm. guys. Don't give your cats cat. It's not cute. <laughs> <laughs> no, no kitty cat. Although it is technically for animals, no kitty cat. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, speaking of Kyoki, actually, Kyoki comes back when Michael's in a very, very bad state and he tries to take him to rehab. Um, and this is where we see the cat has died. And then this, then at this point in the film, when Michael's at his lowest point, it then cuts back to the scene at the start of the film where it's kind of post the murder and Michael has explained to James that he's killed Angel and his reasoning is that it was self-defense because he broke his favorite tea- teapot. Um, and then James then overdoses and ends up in hospital. Um, and he then kind of believes that what Michael's told him was all, was all a dream and that, oh yeah, he didn't really kill anyone. It's all just a fantasy. Uh, but at this point, Michael then opens up and says, oh no, I, I did kill Angel. This all happened. And him and Freeze dealt with the dead body. And... James tells Michael to turn himself in, um, but Michael does not want to do this, as we've mentioned already, and him and Gitsy are kind of running away to go to rehab, apparently. So, in real life, Gitsy isn't really on the scene by that point, because Michael had a boyfriend at this point, um, and basically, Michael and his boyfriend decide that they are going to go back to the Midwest, where Michael's from. And along the way, they break into vets so they can steal drugs and they do all these kind of things. And Getsy's kind of no longer in the picture. Um, Getsy's actually featured quite a lot in the documentary and unfortunately, after filming the documentary, died before it came out. Um, So Getsy gets a lot of time in this film and I think it's to sort of create that heteronormative relationship that people will find relatable because they were desperately wanting to do that in the 2000s, early 2000s. Queer Eye hadn't come out yet. We weren't ready for it. And um, they, right. So they make this sort of heteronormative relationship, even though it 
Gitsy was basically Michael's gal pal that he liked to take drugs with. I don't think they had a sexual relationship because anyone who's taken a large amount of drugs before will know you're not having a sexual relationship with anyone at that point. Um, and Michael, when he is eventually caught and arrested, is with um, the boyfriend whose name I've forgotten, um, but kind of looks like Michael. Um, one of those couples. White gays. I mean, that could be your brother, that could be your boyfriend. Either way, you both have the same first name. Good for you. Um, so, yeah. Um, uh, sort of along the way. And um, uh, What's really interesting as well is, like, I think it's interesting that James is like, oh, you need to turn yourself in and things. I don't know how much that is the truth. Um, especially when you do have, like, columns from Michael Musto, Michael Musto in the New Yorker being like Mr. Murder's on the run again apparently just broke into a vet and like the only reason he would know stuff like that is from actually speaking to like Michael and James and all these people so I don't know how much of it was just a case of like you know you don't oh, oh actually if you watch this documentary there's this woman who's a singer and she was part of the club because i cannot remember her name and um, but the music plays in the documentary and it's a really fascinating song because he tells her that he's killed um angel and she makes this like sort of techno beat and then her just wailing and during the song she's whispering like you need to go to the police michael you need to go and this all came out before he even got arrested like it's so crazy the fact that like i think james like to spin it the whole like i'm your best friend i'm looking out for you you need to go to the police whereas in reality they were all just kind of like oh that michael up to his old tricks again well i always wondered where angel was like they kind of don't treat it seriously mm. at all totally um, you know you you can tell that it's this is based on the book that james wrote because after mm-hmm. the fact you'll have gone and i said that you needed to turn yourself yeah. in whereas in the moment you were like I think of, of all the characters, the one that is painted in the best light is definitely James, which does make sense mm-hmm. because he wrote the fucking film and the book. So I think he seems to be the kind of the voice of reason in all, all these situations. Uh, but I think we can attribute that to him being the, the voice that's telling the story. Um, uh, yeah, can I back to your point earlier, Lucy, about how the character of Gitsy is given a lot of attention and even on like the poster or some of the posters for the film it's like her and macaulay who are like the main two kind of featured and i'm like that's kind of wild that she's given that much time when her character doesn't really have again not much purpose really either she's just kind of there as like a another accessory yeah. for for michael uh and i think it definitely is that and i think it's equally strange that this film was directed by fenton and randy from what a wonder. So it's like queer people making this film written by a queer person. I think it's still wild that even then it's still trying to push this like heady narrative. I think that's crazy. Well, it was the time. It was the time. I mean, if you look at even things like him, um, like Ellen had been out, but Ellen, even after coming out, she her sitcom died after she came out. Um, Will and Grace existed, but if you think about it, Will was played by a straight man and Jack, uh, the actor who plays Jack, uh, only came out recently. Like, People liked queerness, but only in a very certain way. Mm. Formative and obvious. Yeah, and the thing is, already having a character that is like openly bisexual was a big jump. And not just that, but you've got to remember that this was the first feature film they'd made that wasn't a documentary, so they had to make a success. Mm. So tapping into that heteronormative comfort zone that people had at the time made it easier more digestible and more palatable to a bigger audience which they needed because they used to i mean if anyone's watched world of wonder documentaries they used to make like weird mid-90s documentaries about like furries and things like that they had to tap into an audience they weren't used to to make it a success so that's why you've got this odd very heteronormative relationship 
And isn't it wild that we were talking earlier about like one of the one of the cons of the film is that people relate to Michael and see him as like an anti-hero worth admiring because they also uh, it's interesting that they they included this heteronormative storyline if he had been uh, openly gay bisexual more so in the film would anyone have been like oh i see the real human there or would it have been another demonized portrayal of a gay man on or bisexual yeah. man on screen and speaking Evil of recording exactly yeah and speaking of the the kind of humanizing of michael i think that the next scene is the part that i've got an issue with and it's right before Michael's arrested, there's the scene in the bath where him and Gitsy are like in the bath together, like spitting water at each other and kind of giggling like children. I think it's quite strange to, it makes them seem very like cute and innocent. And because they're like, they're not wearing any makeup or any costumes, they're just like naked in the bath. They look so young and so innocent. And it's like, oh, they're just children. Like, it's almost like we should feel sorry for these people because they've been roped into the situation almost. Um, so that I find that scene quite strange, but I, I, I guess I know the purpose of that scene, but it still bothered me. Um, what do yeah, you think, I think the that purpose of it is? I think it was to make them look childlike and innocent. I think I it was know. to show them sort of Michael getting his mojo back. Like he'd been in this downer for like the last sort of six, seven minutes of the film. And then that moment was meant to be like, <clears throat> sorry, that moment was meant to be like, oh, this is, you know, Michael getting his groove back. And even the whole, like, not being able to pee to being able to pee when he's sitting in the hot water thing, like, almost kind of mirrors that, like, you know, oh, Michael's had this really tough time because he's gone and killed someone, but here he is and he's getting better because he's in the bath with Gitsy. And also, I think it kind of shows in that relationship that it was almost a childlike relationship that's why i don't think they had a sexual relationship i don't think they had a romantic relationship i think he just announced that gitsy was his girlfriend gitsy wanted to go along for the ride they just like taking drugs together like even when you look at them way back in peter gation's vacation when they're sitting under a sheet pretending to play fort they weren't adults having an adult relationship that relationship didn't really mean very much or anything really it was just two people who like taking drugs together yeah, I totally read into that scene that it was to show like their immaturity that like, yes, they are grown adults who have legal capacity and whatever, but like they have the, they have the maturity levels of two, four-year-olds in the bath spitting water at each other. Yeah. I think it was, I agree that it did something to humanize both of them, but I read into it like he's less psychopathic and more just doesn't hold the weight of his actions as heavily as he should. Do you know what I mean? We see two people who have killed someone but like have the mental age of seven. Yeah, totally. So even though he's arrested, the the policemen are actually more interested in investigating Peter Gation and they, they think that all of these issues, all the kind of drug problems and evil are linked back to him. So they give uh, Michael the chance to get let off scot-free if he can give them information. And meanwhile, James is starting his novel, but he's still doing drugs and it's definitely not helping the process. And James again tells Michael to, to turn himself in and claim that the, the murder was a self-defense. But Michael, in his classic selfish way, would rather rat out Peter to save himself. Well, the thing with Peter, which is interesting, so in real life, Peter's Canadian. 
So one of the big, one of the reasons why they wanted to get Peter in a big way was to deport him because he had all these big successful clubs in New York. There was drugs, there was tax evasion, there was, you know, underhand deals. What they wanted was to get Peter sent to Canada because he's Canadian. They could have easily have just, you know, immigration mm. could have gotten involved and just sent him away. And that would have been good, but they had to get him on something good. So that's why they wanted to get into the drugs. That's why they wanted to get into all that with Michael. And it's not unusual to get like some kind of bargain like that. Um, especially when you're involved in things like that. And I think it just shows you Michael's willingness to just throw people away when he's done. Um, I literally threw, yeah. threw Mitch Angel's body in the river in a box. Um, yeah. I think it also speaks to uh, the willingness of the police officers to be like, I don't care what happened to this queer Latinx person. I'm looking to get the white man. I'm looking to get money. I'm looking to get... Uh, a bigger mm. payout with the charges and They're not only that go. you had a man who owned the biggest nightclub for that that black people went to in the city you'd have that shut down straight away um if you get that shut down straight away, then a lot because they're called bridge and tunnel people because they don't live in Manhattan, but they come to Manhattan through the bridges and the tunnels. You have a huge amount of black people then not coming to Manhattan, which is what they wanted. So you get Peter Gation gone, you get him out of Manhattan. You've got all these, you know, the thousand or so black people that would come to the nightclub every night gone as well, which is what they wanted. Yeah, it always relates back to their opinion of the black party goers and also mm-hmm. how little mammy who were mammy better behaved <laughs> who were better know, behaved than I all know, of these people my main gripe here is that they're like oh yeah we'll happily throw away the murder of angel to get to this other guy for other reasons mm. to me that's like the fact that we don't see uh, by this point we've seen the recreate and no, we've not yet um the fact that like Angel after his death is used as like just another plot point and it doesn't ever come back to him. Um, even in this point, it's like the police the police officer saying that and obviously Michael's not going to push back on it. I just wish there was someone in the room who was like, I, w- I actually wish we saw a little bit more of the brother, like, because I didn't know that it was the brother who was like, mm-hmm. we need to find him. I wish there was a scene of that because mm. I feel like there's no visual representation for someone seeking justice for him. Which, because there wasn't, you know, other than the brother. Totally. And actually, you just mentioned that, CJ, that the recreation scene. This is the next scene that's completely bizarre. And it's James, who's still in this drug addled stupor. And there's a giant rat that appears that once again is played by uh, Damien from Mean Girls. Yep. Who plays, (laughs) plays every single minor character in this film about about yeah (laughs) all all the side roles Um, and he appears he appears as this giant rat who explains to james what actually happened and that uh, michael was stealing drugs from angel and that he wasn't paying him and that what actually happened was um him and freeze killed angel and that it was not in any way like an act of self-defense so they're very much guilty i have two questions which i want to throw into the atmosphere here and answer number one we see the scene of james writing the big script and then he looks at it and the pages are blank question one is what did those blank pages represent and question number two is the rat a personification of james's conscience telling him what he already knows divulge so with the empty pages of a book, have you ever done this thing before where you've been drunk and you've, you've heard a song, you've been like, I'm going to make a mix. So you give yourself a voice note or you write down a note where it will be like, 
Brittany, Shangela, uh, green bodysuit, and then you wake up in the morning and you go, what the fuck is that meant to mean? Totally. Imagine that, but times a million because you're on lots of ketamine, which makes you A, hallucinate, and B, have no concept of your surroundings, time, all that kind of stuff, or so I've heard. Um, <laughs> like that um, <laughs> I read that in a book somewhere and, um, that, <laughs> allegedly allegedly and that um, I think for James in his head he just he felt like he was writing the great American novel he was doing this thing he was doing all that I think the rat represents someone telling him what actually happened and I think it was freeze because what is a rat in a prison a rat is someone who tells it's a grass so a rat told him what happened the only other person who would know what happened was freeze i think freeze told him what happened and i think that's what that's meant to symbolize right right but it seems more poetic from it coming from the rat that witnessed it than a conversation between two human beings and it linked into the whole idea you've got like icy the bear clara the chicken these like costumes that people used to wear to these club events and they were well known in the club scene so he's like you know me i'm i'm one of them i'm like i'm one of them i'm you know roscoe the rat or whatever his name was um so that idea of the rat told him i think that's james trying to subtly hint that he was told what happened Mm. after he heard the actual story because apparently Freezy's part in all this because it's not actually as it is depicted in the film apparently Freezy's part in it was much milder it was more Michael um, and Freeze I know Freeze couldn't dispose of the body what I think is very interesting as well about the disposal of the body if you go back to the Christmas scene Michael's like oh I can't carve the chicken I just find it I, I, I just can't do it it's just gross and then you go from that to like Freeze being unable to cope but unable to manage at the thought of this body even though he had been quite instrumentally killing him and then Michael being like that's fine I'll deal with it and not having any issue and literally saying when he's talking about it like the meat just slipped off the bone it was no biggie I never even thought about that that is like such a foreshadowing moment actually that's so interesting no I think it's I think it's totally that and I think that shows Michael's development of character that he's gone from this innocent kid who couldn't like cover turkey to like a psychopath for like the um the writing thing i think literally he was just like off his face on whatever kit and he had his pen but like the nib wasn't like out and he was just like scribbling on paper for hours and nothing was coming out i think it was yeah, literally something as simple as mind that have saw words yeah exactly yeah, i just like he was like i finished here's the title and then he opens the pages i thought is this i was like is this him staring at what he's not accomplished in the last few years i was like very metaphorical mm. but um yes let's you're being very deep end. and i'm like you know when you're drunk and you try and make a mix why are there seven tracks <laughs> all muted only of 30 seconds what's going on so the final final scene we cut to the present day where james is presenting his book and then he's phoned by michael in prison and they kind of have this final phone call that it basically like it kind of summarizes their relationship and their friendship and it's revealed that james is the one who reported michael to the police and had him arrested and he's as he says that he had no choice but to do so and he also reveals to michael that gets has died of an overdose although michael doesn't seem too upset by a situation that he says that prison is a lot like a nightclub which that was quite a interesting and profound statement so the bit at the end for me kind of mirrors um almost the sort of start of the story where you know james is trying to tell the the great american story that he's you know been hyping up so much and then michael still finds a way even from jail to interrupt that and make it about him um and then 
with Gitsy dying, I think the reason why Michael is so almost blase about it is because of what I've touched on earlier, where people dying wasn't a big deal to queer communities then because of the AIDS pandemic, because of the amount of drug use in that group as well, um, that it was almost seen as a normal thing. And also, there is a, there's not a lot of depth of character here. If you look at Pose, which is set around about the same time, that deals with the same issues, especially when it comes to like AIDS and HIV and stuff like that, um, and how people die often. And that, you know, there's almost like a time limit on queer people's life that's very much there and it's very much fragile. Because there's no real depth of character in this, it's kind of like, oh, well, Christina's dead. Oh, well, Gitsy's dead. Oh, well, Angel's dead. And I think because death is so downplayed in this, that's why it almost makes sense that Michael gets away with Angel being dead for so long, because they just downplay death so much. But I think the last scene's really interesting and it does totally mirror the documentary where James is poolside with the book, chatting away. I don't think the phone call happens, but that's just, you know, dramatic license to make it a bit more cinematic. Mm. Yeah. Ugh, I don't know, like, I think that this this scene, it just, like, it rubs me the wrong way a little bit in terms of, like, the narrator getting away scot-free whilst someone is in prison when the behaviour was committed on both sides, basically. Um, and my main thing is that, like, yes, there, the theme is friendship and there is a very unique friendship going on between Michael and James here. Um, I just... It's interesting. I'm not... My main thing is that, like, a lot of people who are watching this was like, would, would probably say, how can you be friends with someone who's a murderer? Um, I, I'm a big proponent of, like, I believe that everyone is able to be rehabilitated and everyone deserves a second chance, but only when they've made accurate um, remedies, what's the real word, like, remunerations for their crimes, for their trespasses. And I feel like we don't see Michael feeling guilty at all. We don't see him sad at all. Um, and for me, it's like James, Michael gets to live on in infamy because of the thing he's done. James gets to live on in infamy because of the relationships he's had in his life. And I just, I, I'm left wondering, like, where's the justice for, like, Angel? There's not very much justice. I remember when um, James was touring in the UK. And I had lots of friends who were going to that show. And I, I did remember, like, saying at the time, like, what is James St. James going to do on stage? Hide the fact that he's, like, harboring a murderer? <laughs> like, mm. I don't know if that's a talent that you can put on stage. Can you fit that in a 15-minute section? Like, that's my <laughs> yeah. um, The thing is, like, it's really interesting because as much as I say that I love this film so much, and I do really love this film, and it did shape an awful lot of my personality and who I am as a character and who Havana was as a character and who I was in 2009 to 2012 when I was sort of involved in clubs and stuff then. It's all the start of the film. Like, even watching this film for, like, the hundredth time to sort of go through and take my notes, I actually find the whole murder bit, and between the sort of murder and, like, the James and James interview at the end, quite difficult to watch. Um... I do find it quite difficult to watch. I love this film. I love this film for the donut scene. I love this film for the Texas scene. I love this film for, you know, like the, the stupid one-liners on the talk show and all that kind of stuff. But I think the film almost becomes a different film in the second half. And I think Holy. even when 
we've been talking about it. It was like laughs, jokes, smiles, and all that. And then we've gotten to this point, and we're all we all look sad. <laughs> like I'm looking yeah. at us all right now, and we look sad. And I think this film is a film in like you know two halves. They're not equal halves. It's like an eighty twenty, where this film is really fun and it's life and it's clubs and it's great and it's exciting. And then it takes such a turn that having that light ending just doesn't it doesn't marry it it just does it it kind of puts i'm still sad when james st james is like oh haha michael oh you're so silly coming funny me from jail and i'm just like uh it's like almost sort of awkward to watch there's no peace at the end of it you're not like i feel like a resolution's been reached either on this film narrative i'm watching or in real life yeah. yeah and not just that as well like you look through the film and all the most chill people have died like Kyoki's probably away doing something nice so good for him he's he's removed from this but Gitsy, who was this childlike you know woman who got wrapped up in all this is dead Christina who was although I mean the bus driving was probably very hazardous to other people <laughs> is dead um, and all those all the people who were some kind of light life or comic relief are dead and all the people who were the flawed people, the difficult people, the people who did wrong things are th- thriving in their own way. Mm. Are you thriving in the sense that Michael is enjoying prison, that he's in, he's seeing it as a, like, a, like a new nightclub almost? So, no, totally. Yeah. The thing with a movie is sometimes watching it once, you can't properly like digest it. You kind of need to watch it a few times. And I think you pretty much explained to me my feelings, Lucy. Like, you've, you've hit the nail on the head there completely that the ending does give you that weird feeling. I I think it's a fun film to watch for people who are like interested in queer history or drag history or just kind of topics in that nature. I think I think it's essential viewing in that respect. Is it a perfect film? Absolutely not. I think it, for me, it's like a, a six out of 10, I would say. I think it has lots of fun, campy moments, but I think the source material wasn't dealt with in the most optimum way. And... I think I would love to see I would love to see more films or TV shows or what have you in the future that maybe explore these stories more from like a different angle in a in a different lens and maybe that aren't so biased from one perspective and that maybe shed light on a lot of the characters that weren't given enough attention in this film. Um I would love to see that absolutely. I think that the acting is dire. I think the script isn't great really either. Um but I think it's it's definitely it's like it's a it's a fun and interesting thing to watch. I would say overall. Um, this film will always hold a special place in my heart because I love the soundtrack. I I love music. I'm a total music geek, so I love the soundtrack. As I said, like that first sort of eighty percent of the movie, it just I think it's very beautifully shot in some ways. Like for example, the bit where Angel is going to the hotel room, where you see him in this big grand hotel, and I like the way it's shot. I, visually, it's very pleasing to me because of the outfits, the way it's been shot. I like the nonsense. I like the stupid voices they put on. I like that. It the the charm and the charisma aspects of it are things that have shaped me, and I, I will always hold that dear. But I totally agree with you. Like it isn't. It is not a perfect movie. It's nowhere near a perfect movie. As much as it's one of my favourite ones to watch, it's a comfort movie for me because it has those nostalgic aspects for me. I think if I was watching it as a 29-year-old, I'd be horrified and I'd never look at it. I wouldn't finish it. Um, But because it is that nostalgic thing for me where 
for me that movie is me and my friends you know saying like i'm not addicted to drugs i'm addicted to glamour and oh look that just that coke just flew up my nose and all those <laughs> silly little lines that we used to throw at each other and i think it does actually i think it does parallel queer existence a lot more than other films do for example like you know, the queer story of I'm bigger than this and I'm going to move to the big city and that entrepreneurship that we've all had because we all run shows um, mm. or ran shows in my, in my tense. And um, that sort of the, the things like having our own little language and things like that, I think it does touch into that queer identity more than a lot of films do. However, I don't think it's been done in the correct way and I think it is very much a product of its time. Yeah. It is a product of 2003 where, you know, it was money, success, fame, glamour. The things that they portray in the film are things that were echoed then. That's why you had people like um, Trump, who was very, very popular at the time, who at that time was a reality TV star and a very popular one. You've got people like Paris Hilton and things like that who who embodied that money, success, fame, glamour, famous for doing nothing, famous for being nothing. Mm. Um, and even like Perez Hilton and all the other references I've made throughout this that, that tie that time to the time that this film was made with a 2020 lens, the gritty, gritty lens that we have now, it's a totally different thing. And if you do want to hear other perspectives on it, there's loads of podcasts and stuff on it. Like My Favourite Murder, I've done an episode and stuff on it. So if you are interested, I would definitely say you're further reading so okay kids get the pen and pencil your further reading is definitely um party monster the shockumentary it'll probably be on wow plus still um if not it's on youtube if you don't want to give wow money um and the peter gation documentary definitely yeah literally type peter gation into youtube and you'll find it as well as listen to the soundtrack and yeah. look up my favorite murder the podcast it's a good podcast and they also do an episode on it um, and they take a bit more care around the victims um, and also like have a look look up Angel look up his life and, and the things his brother said about and watch interviews of what his brother says his brother says as well because at the crux of this there is a victim here it's not just you know cinema magic there is someone who unfortunately lost their life as a result of being involved in this scene and as a result of a narcissist being allowed free reign of the island of Manhattan so you know do a little bit of further research it's a very interesting film to watch and it's a very f visually stunning film to watch um and of course that soundtrack is perfect for getting ready to so yeah what's your score out of 10 lucy oh i mean for the nostalgia yeah. for the nostalgia aspect and because i love I, I loved the film so much when i was younger because it shaped me so much when i was younger it's still going to be a 10 out of 10 for me i'm still going to watch it it's going to be my sunday afternoon like i can't think of anything else to do and i do joke that i don't watch a lot of cinema i don't watch a lot of films i don't have the attention span but Same. coming up what i will be doing is i'm actually going to start um twitch streaming where i watch films and i commentate them yeah, because I've never that. seen them. Because I've never <laughs> seen them before. Like I've never seen. Because like lots of people are like, oh, you've never seen Scarface before, and I'm like, the fuck, would I watch that? Hey, Me nonsense. Neither. But then people are like, what do you mean you've never seen like fucking Pocahontas? And I'll be like, no, nah, you know, I was busy as a kid. Um, no, so that's, <laughs> that's, that's the Virgo mood. I was like, I had things to do, you know, schedules. Um, so yeah, I'm wet ass Lucy on basically everything. You can find me on Twitch that way as well. So look for that in the coming future and um, watch some films with me and who knows maybe i'll bump that score down once i see actual films um that aren't just <laughs> the feeling you Ireland films and party monster which is my current like internal library <laughs> totally 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 good i mean good score we're about to drag the average down totally because i'm giving it a 
solid five out of ten. Um, <laughs> I thought you would hate this more than you actually have, though. I was like, CJ is going to fucking hate this. I thought I was like, Ray will be fair and we'll, we'll see it for what it is. But I was like, CJ is going to absolutely hate this. <laughs> I think there's enough pop culture reference to keep me at least semi listening. Um, yep. For me, the use of touch on everything, the only thing I want to add is that, like, at the end of the day, you've said it, there's a victim here. And for me, one of the most egregious things is that usually when there's a victim, the final touch, the final say, even like a, a memorial tribute at the end, like this film is dedicated to, he's not touched on. Yeah. Basically, after the recreation in the rat scene, there's another four or five minutes of the film where everything's tied up with a bow and I'm like, but you've not referenced back to the main thing going on here. Um, and that's my most like upsetting part of the entire thing. Um, I do, yeah, visually stunning. There's really, I, I remember that scene distinctly with him in the red walking into the hotel. It, there's enough like fashion, it's, it's, it's stimulating on a lot of different levels for someone who is drag orientated, but it loses just so many points because I don't think it touches on the real issue or portrays the, the evil doers for a need of a better term. Um, I get like explaining the madness behind someone, but at the end I still have to, I have to feel that they're held responsible for their actions and the scope of the film. And I don't think that happened. So five out of 10, but enjoyed. Yeah. yeah. Soundtrack is fantastic. Oh, great soundtrack, soundtrack, great costumes, and yeah, for everyone out there, definitely like check it out and do all of that further reading, and also like all of the amazing interviews with the club kids that are on YouTube are just so fascinating. Like, I mean, even though that there are still club kid events happening, I think it's a world apart to like twenty, thirty years ago. I think it's a, it's a very like surreal time, and. Yeah, there's, there's a real like moment in history captured there. So yeah, definitely check it out. But I think with that, I think we are done. So thank you all so much for listening and massive thank you to our very insightful and knowledgeable special guest, Miss Lucy. Thank you so much, darling, for joining us. Thank you so much. I think any of our guests will be unmatched by your level of knowledge on any film. <laughs> Completely. And you were like, well, I don't know. I actually spoke to the director and they said. <laughs> <laughs> so McCully Culkin told me a party once. Yeah. Um, like, so in the smoke, <laughs> area at tracks michael alec told me yeah <laughs> but no thank you for yeah, joining us was michael alec is chanel o'connor who knew um <laughs> uh, who is chanel modeling herself after the way that she treats the other chanels I've heard <laughs> um, look if not... niall goes missing we know why <laughs> oh my god <laughs> no comment uh, but yes before we wrap up just give us give us um, all, all of your handles lucy and what like things you want to plug i mean you mentioned earlier your twitch stuff go for it plug away um yeah so i'm actually uh i'm in the process of moving from havana to lucy um i don't know if anyone's noticed but i did quit drag about six months ago um so a lot of my old handles that are still havana meltdown are there they're there as an archive because i'm very very proud of what i did in drag particularly as a woman in drag um and they're all still there however i am starting to move mostly to instagram at the moment but i will be on twitch um as wet as lucy I will hopefully be Twitch streaming in the next few weeks. I just want to get a better webcam because as the girls can see here, she's grainy, but not the good kitty grainy. Um, so you can watch films with me, um, which will be fun because obviously there's live comments and stuff. We can do all that. Um, and yeah, I think that's everything I need to plug. Of course, if Tracks does come back, when that comes back, Monday nights, I will be in the audience. So 
that'll be happening. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me. I've had such a fun time. Aww, you, you totally so much, need to post the film schedules of what you're going to be watching on Twitch because I'll have never watched any of them. I'll be like, I'm going to watch oh. it with Lucy at the same yeah. time. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I always find that I watch films better if I watch them with other people. So I was like, well, I can't really have anyone around the house. So like, yeah, let's just all watch it together online. <laughs> Cut to Lucy not watching the screen and just watching the comments box being like, you guys are so funny. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Where can the kids follow you, CJ? At the CJ Banks on all social media. I've got nothing to plug because I am not doing anything. Where can the yes. children find you, Jazz? They can find me at Rujazzle, R-U-J-A-Z-Z-L-E. And you follow us at Screen Queens, Queens with the KW. And we'll be revealing um, upcoming episodes and guests. So yes, keep posted there. And yeah, I think we're all done. So darlings, thank you all for listening. And we will catch you next time. Bye. 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 Bye.